You are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. And that's it. It's lonely here in the Grotto Pod today. It's just me. Uh, Bridget Quinn, author, not present in the Grotto Pod today. Best laid plans of mice and men. She was so looking forward to today's episode, uh, not only because it would represent a reunion with me, because I've been gone for close to a month, uh, worldwide travels, nothing important, but she was also looking forward to meeting our guest today. Kevin Smokler is our guest today. She was looking forward to it for a number of reasons, one of which being that his most recent book, uh, Brat Pack America, a love letter to 80s teen movies, uh, touches on a subject that is near and dear to everyone uh, in what I guess you would call uh, middle middle age. You know, I don't know how to define middle age. People tell me I'm not middle aged yet, and I say, sweet, that means I'm going to live to be 107. Awesome. Maybe not. Anyways, uh, so... This I read this book uh, about a month ago after Kevin came to the Grotto for a uh, one of these author lunches that we like to do. I really tore through it because, yeah, I am really interested in an academic uh, deconstruction of my favorite 80s movies. Not just John Hughes movies, though the cover of Brat Pack America uh, features a silhouette of a fist-pumping Judd Nelson from The Breakfast Club. Um it goes beyond that. It includes some more obscure movies. It includes different genres of 80s music, but it is pretty comprehensive. And for a guy who, uh, he's younger, I think he was only 11 when Ferris Bueller came out, but I'll, I'll uh, have to, I will have to double check that bit of information, do a little fact checking, which I'm not used to doing. Uh, he also is the author of Practical Classics 50 Reasons to Reread 50 Books You Haven't Touched Since High School. That was in 2013. And Bookmark Now Writing in Unreaderly Times, a 2005 San Francisco Chronicle notable book. He has been a two time artist in resident, uh, residence of the Ragdale Foundation. And he was a writer in residence in 2013 at Book Riot. So he's got uh, the bona fides for sure. One thing that I find really interesting about Kevin is that uh, when we were talking at lunch, he was talking a little bit about the sort of supporting tour he was doing for Brat Pack America. And it didn't really sound like any book tour that I had heard of. It was more... Um, they're more like speaking engagements, I guess you would say. We'll get into that, but it seems like the idea was that... Um, he would go to a large auditorium or maybe a medium-sized auditorium, nevertheless, an auditorium, not a little bookstore, uh, show a movie, say uh, Breakfast Club, seems to be one of the faves, and then do a Q&A afterwards. So he's presenting himself both as the author of the book and as an expert on this time period and this um, subject, movies, 80s movies. Uh, fascinating stuff to me. Uh, he also has a lot of work doing marketing. Let me get my notes again because I dropped them on the ground. Very professional here uh, as I go through my notes. I can't think of a way to distract you away from what I'm actually doing. He uh, also he is he has something called Creative Guide San Francisco. Uh, basically consults with creatives on how to market themselves. He's worked with Mary Roach and Rhodes Fishburne, both Grotto members, along with uh, musicians, filmmakers, um, institutions. Kind of fascinating stuff uh, and something that we don't generally see that side of here in the Grotto Pod. We'll get authors in here saying, yeah, i got to go promote the book, but we don't really see someone who knows how that sausage is made and is able to advise people on it. So I'm eager to get Kevin in here. Uh, I just did a nice little cleanup of the Grotto Pod because I came in here and found it was completely disassembled. Nice thing to come to when you've been gone for a long time, as I have been. But everything's back in order now. The foam is back on the walls. The mixing board is horizontal as it should be instead of doing a little uh, two, two-legged stand it was doing before. Mics are back in place. Bridget, unfortunately, is not here. A little uh, knee-related medical emergency going on with our friend BQ. So uh, give your good thoughts to the gods of knee infections that she will be on her feet again doing triathlons and back here in the grotto pod with me. Because I never thought I'd say this, but, you know, it's kind of big and lonely in here with just one guy, one person. So uh, it is almost time for Kevin to join us, join me, 
force of habit. So I'm going to sign off for now, and I'm going to go get him and sit back. Uh, especially you're in for a treat if you are, like me, a big fan of these 80s movies. Not even just a fan. If you're someone who's looked real closely at 80s movies, that's what we're going to be doing in here and finding out a little bit more about what makes Kevin Smokler tick. Okay, Kevin Smokler. Smokler. You know, uh, one thing Bridget's sad about that she's not here is she thinks your name actually sounds like an 80s movie nickname. The Smokler. I could see that. Like, yeah. I would be like the stoner character wearing the uh, wearing the beret sideways. And, um, <laughs> and maybe with like the t-shirt, you know, like the t-shirt with like one sleeve too long and a giant marijuana. Uh, tumbling out of Spicoli's van. Right, or a locker. In time I, for second open, maybe. <laughs> Which if you were the Stokler, which at first I forgot and thought that was your name, the Stokler's a completely different guy. It's that's true. The Stokler. He's more of a surfer guy. Yeah, he's like he's like your dumb friend who gets laid a lot. Nobody can figure out why. <laughs> like kind of like Stifler on the on the American Pie series. But yeah, it's it's a weird like when people ask me how my last name is pronounced, I say, "What does it look like?" And they usually say, "What do they say?" Smokler. No, they usually say, like when I ask that question, they usually say Smokler. I say, "Yeah, that's right." It's, it, 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 but it doesn't sound like a real name, so I, I think that's why people think it must be pronounced uh, some other way. It's good. Are you Jewish? I am. Yeah, but that's not a Jewish name. It is. It is. I, I mean, not like it's not a Jewish name like not like le- Goldberg or right. It's like not one you point to as a Jewish name. Right. But I. If, if memory serves, it is a, it is like an Ellis Island mm. changing of an Ellis Island like refabbing of of Schmuchler, which German is, uh, Yiddish, which is the oh. which is the Yiddish word for jeweler, um, sort of an occupational surname. Mm. But there's no, but there are no jewelers or jewelry uh, merchants or repairmen of any kind in my family, so nobody quite. Knows well, it was true. probably more more. Many years, you know. Well, actually, if it was Ellis Island, that's only three generations, right? Four in Four. my case, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like, like nobody, like people. I have, I have cousins who've done a lot of genealogy work, and nobody, like, there, nobody knows of any jewelry people working in the jewelry profession in my family. That's so. cr- well, you know, I'm Rosen, which is just Rose. I don't know, you know, and, and I thought I was Romanian forever, and like five years ago, I said to my dad, you know, it's a German name, isn't it? He went, oh, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> They're not the same country. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But uh, that's, that's for the other podcast. For this one, though, we want to talk about writing and we want to talk about your books um, specifically. But, you know, before I get into any of that, going over your, your website and your LinkedIn page and interviews and all this stuff, I come to one question. What, Kevin Smogler, are you? Are you a writer? Are you a marketer? Are you a public speaker? Are you... You're a multi-hyphenate, man. Which comes first? Writer, definitely. Okay. Um, as I have been, like, like full-time professionally for seven or eight years. Okay. But as I have been doing for money since I was 16 years old. Um, the... Uh, I... I understand the confusion because I kind of dab my toes and I, I dab my toes in a lot of different ponds or puddles, maybe. Um, <laughs> but as I like to say, usually when I say I am a writer who is who is relentlessly and tragically extroverted, mm. um, that usually explains the other things yeah. I, I, I do. I, I, I just, I mean, uh, writing is what I'm best at, and it's the truest expression of my creativity. But I'm just like not a person who can sit behind a desk all day long, and so I, uh, the, the the outward manifestation of that is public speaking and doing radio and podcasting and stuff like that. Now, one thing I noticed when you were in for the lunch was how you described the tour you were or the events you were doing to support um, Brat Pack Nation, America, Brat Pack America, yeah. because and I said this in the intro, they were nothing like what other writers come here. And tell us they do to support their books. You weren't in a bookstore with 25 people. Sometimes it was. But you do these large events where you show Ferris Bueller or you show Breakfast Club. It's not like it's always Breakfast Club, is it? It, It's more frequently than any other movie, Breakfast Club. But it's not the only movie I show. Put a pin in that because I want to come back to that. And then you have a QA and a afterward. What, you know, as someone who's a writer first then, what leads you in the direction to come up with that idea. It sounds like way more fun than sitting in a bookstore, you know, reading a passage. Where do you come up with that idea? It works. Yeah. I mean, I like to think it works. The, um, 
uh, how do you come up with it? A couple ways. One, like, uh, no slag to bookstores. Like, I, I love bookstores. I grew up in the same sure. town where yeah. Borders comes from. So, like, I... Um, I spend a lot of time in bookstores, and I always insist that a local bookstore sell books at whatever event I'm doing mm-hmm. because I want I want um, I want to honor the the, the the book community of the place I that is hosting me. Um, I think when you are promoting a book, you have to ask some very hard questions of yourself and of the person or persons you that will be reading it. You hope, um, and one of those is like, and, and this is frankly, easier for nonfiction writers than it is for fiction writers because the market is, the, the potential reader is just clearer. You know, you write a book mm-hmm. about sailboats and you, a nonfiction book about sailboats and you're like, oh, people right. who like sailboats. Um, in this case, I wrote a book about 80s movies. I am your reader. Yes, I am one of, I am one of 30 years of fans of 80s movies. Mm-hmm. But they're fans of those movies, not of me. Like, I am not a household Okay. Man. So saying Kevin Smokler is going to be in town doesn't mean much. Saying The Breakfast Club is going to be in town and Kevin Smokler is going to be, you know, 10% value add on your experience of watching The Breakfast Club, people will be like, oh, well, that, that no, sounds... That is, that that is worth... Very, that's very savvy, and that's your idea, because I know you also... Uh, do consulting with creatives on how to market and how to do things like that. It was how I paid my bills for a long time. Mm-hmm. Since I've since I've been been focusing on books for the last five or six years, I don't do much of it, but mm-hmm. it's still like it's a muscle I like to right. exercise because. Selfishly speaking, you know, you've got, you've got to keep yourself honest. Like, you've got to keep yourself honest and sort of honed to um, how your work is being received by people. You know, it would it, I would love to say that that my books are at a place where someone simply sees the name Kevin Smokler on the cover and is like, good enough for me. Let me grab yeah, that. I'm, and I'm just not there yet. But I think you have... I'm not, I don't want to, I'm trying to think of the right adjective to use. It's an unusual approach compared to most of the writers who come through here. I don't think they put that kind of thought into who's reading the book and what can I do to really promote it. They just think, all right, here we are, we're touring, you know, and I'm an expert on Middle East politics. So we're going to talk about that. Or I wrote a novel about butterflies. So we're just going to read from the novel. If you have a publisher who who is willing to lay out a golden road for for those opportunities for mm-hmm. you, great. Um, most of us do not and will not, and you will have to create those opportunities yourself. What you will hear from your from your very nice, tragically overworked publicist is uh, an audible shrug. And they will say, I will do the best I can. Mm-hmm. At which point, if you hear that, um, that is code for, that is code for, show me what you can make happen, and then I will get behind it and push. Okay. Um, which is where being a self-described, uh, what did you say, an, an inexhaustible extrovert? And tragically so, because uh, it's sort of, you know, the people who, God, I, I am so jealous of the people who do that, what we do and but, are like, and are like, oh, and then I just spent all weekend in a writing reverie, and I was that, like, I can't do that. But that comes in handy when it comes time to promote the book, because I'm more one of those writers. Granted, here I am, I have a show. I have two shows. I talk mm-hmm. to people on a microphone, but I am not an incorrigible extrovert. So if you said to me, all right, Rosen, you got your book, time to promote it, I would say, just, just tell me what to do. I, I can't, you know. It wouldn't, I wouldn't come up with, let's fun ideas where people could come and see. I'd be like, ah, someone else take care of this. I would, can I just go sit in my room? I get that. Yeah. And it is, it is like no slag to you because I hear that all the time. But that is a that is a – that is not only a position of privilege. It's not a recipe for success. It's not a recipe for success. <laughs> it is probably, in fact, leading you off a cliff. And then when you when you come back to re-up with your publisher and say, didn't we do great last time? Their answer will probably be no, and the implication will be, and that's mostly your fault. Yeah, times have changed, right? Yeah, yeah you can't do – and that's, that's pretty much – I mean, that is a topic that is discussed ad nauseum in these hallowed halls, that the days where you could – be the you know the, the the delicate creative in your garret writing your book and then hand it to someone who makes you rich. Those are over. They are, and I I was I was I, I stalked these hallowed halls you know a thousand years ago when there were different <laughs> hallowed halls on the other end of that's San right. Francisco. Um, 
And I would say that, and and to me, and it wasn't because I was trying to like change the way books were promoted or the way authors thought. It's just it's just who I was. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I get to go across the country and like yammer with people who are interested in what I have to say, and basically smile and say thank you over and over again and be entertaining. That sounded like the world's greatest job. Key word: entertaining. So, is it extrovert or is it entertaining? I can entertain, but after I'm done entertaining, I will retreat to my room. I get that. I get that. And as I get older, like as I get older, like the the charm and romance of getting up at four thirty in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to get to, to go on the radio, <laughs> to go on the radio uh, or catch a plane to somewhere else, wears thin. Definitely because I just don't have the energy I used to have when I started doing this. Mm-hmm. But I find that I, I, I let, let me put it to you this way because I, I think this is an answer to your question and not just like a blanket pronouncement. Um, I find if you are, I have found, learned the hard way that if you are sick of your subject or your book, by Mm. the time it comes time to go out and talk about it, you are in real trouble. Because the audience, your potential readers doesn't know a dang thing about it. Right, right. So you've got to go and tell them. And no one else is going to do it. So so whether you're entertaining or you're a natural extrovert, enthusiasm is the key. They, They need to know you still are psyched about what you wrote about. Yeah. And you've been done a pretty good job of writing about stuff you're psyched about. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's possible. Like, even if you're a sort of serious literary fiction writer or a short story writer, I think that's all possible. Like, I cannot, I mean, and this could just be me and the way I'm wired, but I cannot tell you the number of times I have listened to a novelist talk and liked them mm-hmm. so much, or the or the enthusiasm or light the or aura they brought to the book, to, to, to talking about their new book, and I was like, "Give me that." Yeah. I and I cannot tell equally. I cannot tell you the number of times I have found an author surly, off-putting, you know, grudgingly there, and I was like, "Well, f you and the horse you rode in on." And that- like, I'm. I'm I, I got 1,600 books at home waiting, for, <laughs> clamoring for my attention, well, and none of them gave me attitude. And that's like, a special kind of disappointing that I think is not unusual. Because, And I've said to people before, like, and it's kind of a lie, I'd say I'm much better in print than in person. And I, But I think there are a lot of authors for whom that is tragically true. It may be. Uh, first of all, if it was true for you, I wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, yeah, it's not that true. <laughs> or maybe I'm just really good in print. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept that. And second, like, yeah, I, I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to be such a such a delicate little flower where I'm like, where I'm like, I can't, you know, I can't. I I, 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 I turn my back on, you know, I, I, I turn my back on uh, A.S. Byatt's prose because she's a snob. Like, right. That's, that's just not, that's not fair well, to sort of the, the, the enterprise. If, if that were true, yeah, I'd never listen to Ryan Adams if that were true. Uh, yeah, same here. I um, mean, I remember I used to cover music when Whiskey Town first broke, and I did an interview, I did an interview with Mike Watt from uh, The Minutemen. Yeah. And he had mentioned that Ed, his guitar player, was playing with Whiskey Town. Oh, you know, nothing good to say about Ryan Adams. <laughs> but then you'd listen to the music and you'd read the lyrics and go, maybe the, the only way this guy cannot be a prick is through his art. Yeah. And, and, and lucky us, like like the only relationship we have to have with him <laughs> is listening to his have. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Like, I, I think I, I think the example I was giving a little earlier is like when, when you have choices, when you have choices as to how you spend your your time with art or music or movies, um, how how the creator of those things presents themselves to you and the attitude they 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 bring to your presence and time and attention i think is important like like we if we were doing this if you really want to only do this for yourself mm-hmm. don't publish right. fine fine you, you you'll, you'll receive 100 yeah. percent satisfaction when you dot the last sentence be that kind of crazy romantic artist yeah. which sort of it's a nice segue because i was just thinking so you started writing professionally when you were 16 you yeah, said you I got a, money when you were 16. I was a, I was a summer intern at uh, at the Ann Arbor News where I grew up and I, I I divided my time that summer between doing that and um and uh, uh, filling holes in the in the backyards of a condo complex nice. on the maintenance staff over there. So that's, getting, what I, that's what I did that summer. So both poles were being yeah. being met. And so you went into it wanting to be a journalist? Yeah. I mean, I god, I probably didn't I probably didn't have the words for it, at but that not time. the brooding poet type. 
No, no, I wanted to be Roger Ebert. Like I oh. had, I had read, I had been given a a collection of Roger Ebert's criticism for my birthday in the sixth grade, and I was, I just thought he opened the whole world of movies to me. I was a movie fan already, but I didn't realize that like movies had been around for a hundred years, and you could, and I liked to write, and you could talk about them, you know, with with enthusiasm, without w- without being a genius or without having seen all of them, like. But it's not just enthusiasm that you write about. And I mentioned this in the intro that what I love about Brat Pack America, I got it right this time, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm able to, I can learn things. Was I love a subject like that tackled in the most serious ish and academic ish way. You take it seriously. Not, I don't want to use that, it's not dry, but it's serious. You're not taking it super lightly. So I don't think it's just enthusiasm. It's an ability to take things seriously and really put all of your, you know, all of your considerable talents and gifts into this subject. Oh, that's that's very nicely put. Uh, I mean, I, I I think you really got it. Like, I am not always great at it. Like, I would love to believe I was a person who just like who like lived off of hard work, and, mm-hmm. and I'm just not. Like, I I, I enjoy like having fun and like the day the hard work of the day being done too much that said like if someone is going to spend their time and money you know on 300 plus pages that i just you know wrote and someone copy edited and content edited and bundled up and designed and distributed all over this great land like (laughs) like i want to make sure like i want to make sure like a i've given the subject it's due b i've honored the attention of the people who are choosing to read me Mm -hmm. and see like like you that you've like that you've just that you've done the work. You know, the work is more than my opinion. The work is the work is taking the subject seriously enough to form an opinion. And, and do you think? I want to word this right because it just occurred to me. But um, you take '80s movies, and and not not it's, you're not writing about Scorsese here. You know, you you can you devote you know several pages to Last American Virgin, which I thought I was the only person who had ever seen that movie. Uh, I don't because I've never. seen Oh, you that don't? Movie, Shoot! Oh, I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of Valley Girl. Yeah. <laughs> but um, do you think 30 years ago a similar book could have been written about, you know, The Trip or Psych Out or any of those movies? God, that's a that's a fair question. Are we ready now? Are, are, are we the generation like, well, this is our culture, and it may not be Stravinsky or you know some crazy stuff. I'm not sure Stravinsky was Stravinsky. Like when <laughs> you know, like um, you know, he he sent people screaming and running in terror from that concert hall in Paris, and they probably thought he was just some some cheap schlock. Sure, but <laughs> but remember, the opposite of love isn't hate. It's it's apathy. Oh, absolutely. They cared enough to hate him. <laughs> right. Um, I, I, if you're asking, did time need to pass for us to take um, these movies and the 55 of them that I write about in, in Brat Pack America? Seriously, yeah, of course. Like, um, and uh, it, it is the rare, it is the rare um, creative person who is considered, you know, a legend to be in their own time. Mm-hmm. Like, or, you know, and, and, and I, sh- I should say a legend to be at the beginning of their career. You know, people thought that about Bob Dylan. People thought that about Michael Jordan. People think that now about Kendrick Lamar, you know, but mm-hmm. there's one or two of those in a generation. Like, I that, mean, that was a be, fantastic culture spanning sentence right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, to be, to be fair, like nobody thought that about John Hughes when no. he was around. People thought John Hughes was a guy who would like hit upon a good formula. Was there mm-hmm. anyone making teenage movies back then that was thought of as a serious artist? I don't think so. I don't either. You know, because even um, 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 who did um, Fast Times? Amy Heckerling. Amy Heckerling. Yeah, at the time, she wasn't. No, and Martha Coolidge wasn't. And, no, and um, and neither was Savage Steve Holland or or the. God, I love that you devote time to Savage oh, Steve yeah. Holland. I mean, those are just great movies. <laughs> We're talking about Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer, and um, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, even people who made teen movies the generation before that, like, okay. like we 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 mostly really up until I think it took a long time for people to look at at American graffiti 
as something other than what George than George Lucas's warm up exercise before right. Star Wars, even though it was a huge hit. Yeah, and American Graffiti, I think, is actually a standout because I can't think of a movie Lucas has made since then. And yes, I'm talking about all the Star Wars movies where he, he how would I put this? Where he treated his characters with as much respect. Where they weren't just pieces being moved around a chessboard. I agree with that. I mean, I, um, yeah, I, I think you know, uh, you have to. We have to be very like precise when talking about American Graffiti because American Graffiti was a movie about teenagers for grownups. Like it was not what John right. Hughes was doing, making a movie about teens for teens. Well, and I think that's one of the things that stands out about the '80s teen movies is there's no nostalgia. It's of the moment. Exactly. That's it's actually better put than than I think I did in this book. But like you're you're absolutely right. They're, they're about the present moment. Crazy thing about American Graffiti was when it came out, it was referring to a time period that was only eleven years in the past. Isn't that crazy? Like, it is. like there's this there's this weird bumper crop of eighties teen movies about you know, the Eisenhower and Kennedy eras, the sort of late fifties and early sixties. Is that your first chapter? No, it's a little bit further along in the book, but those were all, um, sure. Those were, that that was Porky's movies. Yeah. The, uh, back Back to the future. Um, Oh yeah. Back to the future. Journey dancing, dead poet society. Like those were all eighties movies about the 1950s and sixties. And that was 30 years before, um, before, uh, uh, the present moment when those movies were made versus 10. Versus like, 10, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's hard for me to say whether or not as much culture had happened in between 1962 and 73, which is when American Beauty was set and when it was mm. released, because I was only eight years old that came out. It seemed like forever ago. Mm. You know, yeah, I mean, my I, parents, that was when they were in high school, you know? I get that. Like, I, yeah, you're right. It seemed, I think, I mean, I think that movie very skillfully focused focuses on sort of artifacts from a bygone era. You know, mm-hmm. the movie is the, 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 the iconography of that movie is vintage cars and cruising and and the, you know, the looming shadow of the Vietnam yeah, War. Yeah, so much had happened. Have you seen more American Graffiti? No. I think in some ways it's better but it's not the same. It's not more American Graffiti. It's yeah. a completely different movie but it's really that's good. That's interesting. Like, yeah, that's that's a that's that's, in a book about sequels that sounds that sounds like a key was that on the horizon for you no (laughs) but that's uh but uh, that movie sounds like should be so let's talk a little bit about the genesis of how the book happened so you had just come off the classics book um actually before i go there explain to me to sort of circle back to what we were talking about earlier what sort of touring and promotion did you do for the classics book the name of it's so long that i cannot remember it uh my the book that i i that i i wrote and came out in 2013 was called practical classics subtitled 50 reasons to reread 50 books you haven't touched since high school and the, the the premise of that was that I spent a year rereading everything I, as a as a thirty nine year old at that time, was assigned as a fifteen year old high mm-hmm. school student. Um, and and you're the, anti um, Catcher in the Rye, right? No. Oh, I thought no. you didn't like it. No, but- I, I I I think I think. I think if we if we look at Catcher in the Rye as we did when we were sixteen, i.e., is Holden Caulfield someone I want to hang out with? Then yeah, <laughs> it is really easy not to like Catcher in the Rye because Holden Caulfield seems like a you know seems like an entitled brat. Um, I think if you I, what I said in that in Practical Classics is if we know a little something about um, where J.D. Salinger was when he wrote it, mm-hmm. and if we pay particular attention. To the fact that Holden Caulfield is is newly mourning his deceased brother, um, it is a different book about a, a about a kid that is that is grieving, not a kid that is trying to you know evade adult responsibility. How do you think people miss that? I don't know. I've read I read Catcher in the Rye a dozen times, and I missed it every time. So what I would do when I was on tour is I would ask people how many siblings does Holden Caulfield had. Most people only remember One. Phoebe, his younger sister, um, and then I say, well, what about? His older brother, D.B., who was the screenwriter. Oh, yeah, he's got three. So people will say that. And they say, okay, two. And I say, well, I say, who's no, the most, there's three. Most there's Allie, his sibling. brother, who's, da- who's dad. Yeah. Which I have to say in a morbid way, that's my son's name. Oh, no kidding. Well, Dennis. It's the same way? Yeah. A-L-L-I-E. Dennis Miller already named his kid Holden. I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, no, I, 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 I. I did like that book, but I, I, I was mostly shocked that I had, that I had read it, you know, I as missed many times that. as I had and missed it. I think most people miss that. 
I think. I'm, yeah, yeah, which is, and I don't, I, I couldn't tell you why. Did you find any parallels, and this is off the top of my head, between that idea that a book, a piece of art, becomes sort of an icon in capturing a moment? Like, oh, this is about a teenager, and we all miss the most important part? Yeah, I mean, that does happen. You know, like, I, I, wrote, a, I wrote a piece after Brat Pack America came out significantly. It was part of the promotion of that. I wrote a piece about the car song Moving in Stereo, which most people know as the now know as the Phoebe Kate Steps Out of the Pool song from oh, right. Original High. Yeah. And that song is on the Cars first album, way before they had had any top forty hits. Mm-hmm. And it was if you listen to it is kind of a, a it's sung not by Rick Ocasek but by Benjamin Orr and mm-hmm. it is a, if you listen to it it sounds like a serial killer's theme song. <laughs> it is essentially a song about like like stalking someone and that song is now the that song now means one thing in our culture like it means i just saw a pretty girl and it will be that forever thanks to fast times at richmond high and so that song has been completely removed from from where from its birthplace Uh, and that and that does happen to me Mm -hmm. like the fact that it happens is, is, is less interesting than than how than than what it means that it's happened Mm and um um but yeah, you're, you know, there's. Um, it is one of the things I had to. One of the questions I got while I was touring for Practical Classics was like, and it, and it's it was a perfectly logical book because it's baked into the premise of of Practical Classics, which is like, how does a book that seems to have like a built-in expiration date, like a jug of milk. Like, how does it hold up in adulthood? Like, right. who reads on the road like after age twenty? Like, I did. <laughs> <laughs> or who reads like Atlas Shrugged after age yeah. twenty-five? That's like, a really interesting point, and the same goes for the movies too. Very much so. Like, is it the same? I'm sorry. I, no, please. I'm just very excited. Uh, <laughs> is it the same with with the books where? Um, oh, shoot, I lost my train of thought. I guess where where you 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 know you read them when you're a teenager, you have a certain take, and then as an adult, if you go back and read them, you know what's the purpose of reading them? Is it for nostalgia to feel the way you did the first time you read it, or are you going to get a completely different take this time when you read Catcher in the Rye? You're going to go, oh, I'm a parent now. I know what this is about. Yeah, I mean, you always bring you to it. Like that's the the that's what they say is the. the, the Italo Calvino said a classic, famously a classic is some is a is a thing that never runs out of things to say. Right. And the way I think, which is true, but it, it also it also instead of speakings is refracting. It, it's like a prism that you just turn and and, and it endlessly reflects refracts different aspects of you and yourself. You're a different person mm-hmm. when you read it, and the book speaks to you. The book, movie, song speaks to you in a different way because of that. Um, I did get, when I was on tour for Brat Pack America, the most common question I got was, what's your favorite 80s movie? The second most common question I got was, what do you think of Stranger Things? And the third, oh. and the third most common question I got is, can I show my kid blank? Oh. Um, and I'm I'm not a parent, so I don't have like I don't have a good answer to that. So the, so the one I always gave was... If you sit there with them and sure. are willing to talk sure. about it with them afterwards, and I'll say then that's an interesting question because as a parent who grew up on '80s movies, it's something you've been waiting to do. Uh, indeed. <laughs> when do I get to no show one would my ask son? Me that question if they weren't if they right. Didn't want to. <laughs> when do I have? When do I get to show him Animal House? It was when he was twelve. I showed him Animal House, and yeah. I showed him Fletch, and I showed him all that stuff. Um, so back to the idea of promoting um, practical classics. How did you tailor that tour? That one was a bit more straightforward mm-hmm. because a book about books is a natural for the the Bookish. literary ecosystem. So bookstores, libraries, a lot of schools. Um, I did God, I, I did a ton of like I did a ton of like library fundraiser dinners mm. which were which were super fun because like you you are essentially the like after dinner pre dessert entertainment. And so you only have one mandate. Like because you are effectively the guest of honor, but you only have one mandate, which is like be entertaining for ten minutes so um, people are thinking about you instead of like the pie. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's not you know that's not I don't find I don't find that super. I, I, I think anybody anybody could do that, you know, with enough charm. Like, but it must be great because 
because of the subjects you write about, you can easily be slotted into these places where they're a natural fit. You know, and, and no one's going to know, what's this guy talking about now? Oh, we're at a library benefit. He's here talking about these books that we've all read. Fantastic. I would love to think that I was so endlessly creatively inspired that um, the things that I spend my time as an artist working on are just are just completely fueled from the inside. They're things I have to write about and say, and it doesn't really matter who. This is who my next question. Them. Yes, and like, and I am I am just not that kind of. Do artist. you keep an eye toward then? Oh, if I write this, people will want to read it. I mean, not in a craven way. Like I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not like tracing memes on BuzzFeed or something like that to try and think about what I want to spend my time with. But everything that I write. I am conscious of the fact that there is a reader or a few readers out there for it. And I and I am engaged in an active communication with mm-hmm. them. I can talk past them, I can talk over their shoulder, I can face the other way. But then like really like what am I doing? Like like, like who whom am I speaking well, to other than myself then? So when you say so you're sort of jumping ahead a couple steps because, you know, for you said earlier you have no interest in being that guy sitting in the garret. And then when you die, your papers are revealed and your genius is understood. But Yeah. <laughs> but you also... I'm not going to be around to appreciate it. Like, right. <laughs> but you're also doing, kind of doing your agent's job or your publisher's job for them because you already know who your audience is. Nobody I, has to ask you. That's true. I'm not always right. Like, like I was... I. The audience for Practical Classics, I thought, was going to be people like me. But the truth is, like people like me, um, don't have don't have you know endless free time or the or the demands of a book contract to spend time rereading you mm-hmm. know the Scarlet Letter or Pride and Prejudice. Like most of them are busy, and so strangely enough, like like not strangely enough, the audience for Practical Classics skewed older. It was a lot of oh. like it was a lot of oh. like retirees and people with time, which is which is awesome. But I misjudged that. See, I would too, because I would think when I saw that book, for me, the value of it was you go through every chapter, you get reminded of all these books, and of the 50, you choose a few that you want to reread. Yeah. And I, 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 I guess I thought, I guess, I guess I had me and my high school classmates in mind, and I should have <laughs> had like me and their parents in mind. Um, the, I mean, for Brat Pack America, I was like, every single person is going to look exactly like me who likes this book <laughs> because like, I would present it to like, you know, my brother-in-law who's 15 years younger than me and he's like Marty McWho. Uh, um, you're killing me. Surprisingly, surprisingly, and this was awesome, surprisingly, a ton of teenagers love that book. I can't tell you how many 16-year-olds showed up at my event, you know, with their parents in tow and are like, are like my favorite movie in the whole world is over the edge and I'm like because their parents showed it to them yeah yeah and I'm like really (laughs) see and when I I know you're I I consider you on the young side to love all these movies yeah I was I was slightly I was slightly below adolescence when these movies came out like I was 13 when The Breakfast Club came out I was not 18 yeah and see I thought I was when did that movie come out 85 85 I was 20 yeah. So I was a little old. I was. That's why I'm more of a Valley Girl, Fast Times, sure. uh, that era. And I didn't like The Breakfast Club at first. I thought it was really simplistic. And I really, it really bothered me more than it should, and it bothered me to this day, that Emilio Estevez's Letterman's jacket didn't have, um, what you call it, on the bottom. It just hung. Oh, it didn't. It wasn't like it didn't, didn't have, have any. Ela- it didn't have any elastic on oh, the bottom. Oh yeah, yeah. My son that is did, like. poor attention to detail, John Hughes. <laughs> yeah, maybe in Chicago it was different. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So what then? I mean, I, I would think. Well, your book go, it goes up to eighty nine, and I'll admit at the end there's some movies where I didn't see that one. I'm convinced nobody, because people have better things to do, like nobody has seen all 55 movies. Like, <laughs> but you haven't seen Last American Virgin. Which... I haven't. I mean, I haven't seen Rad either, Like, which is which is. I forget. Rad, do, you have, do you have Gleaming the Cube in there? It's a little later. Gleaming yeah, the Cube yeah. is, is early 90s. Uh, Last American Virgin is actually produced by, or directed by an Israeli guy. And it stars, it's got um, one kid, Stephen. Was it a canon film? I don't remember because mm-hmm. I didn't pay attention to that. Yeah. But the guy who plays Makeout Rick is this guy, Stephen. I forget what his name is, but he later made a, book, a movie called Inside Monkey Zetterling hmm. that he directed himself. 
These are facts that all of you Grotto Pod listeners really, really need to know. Let's get back into the making of the book itself. So when you take on a project like this, how does it unfold in front of you? Do you just write a list of movies? Oh, you mean Brad Pack, America. Yeah. Um, that one, I I had an idea. I wanted to do a, a book about 80s teen movies. And so then you have to kind of define your terms. Like, mm. what does that mean? And then you have to look at the landscape and say, like, has someone been here already? Uh, and the answer is yes, lots of someones. But don't they usually limit themselves to John Hughes movies? Yeah, but also, like... Um, also, yes, they do, but some of them, you know, there's plenty of, not plenty, but there are definitely books about, like, 80s sports movies mm. and, like, sort of how the Reagan era is conceived in movies about young people and, like, 80s movies that, you know, that relitigate the Vietnam War and, like, mm. stuff like that. So you have to you have to take all that into consideration and say, okay, well, what do I, what, why, why are the, and, and, and you have to ask the question, why am I interested in this subject beyond beyond you know for beyond my own selfish reasons? Mm-hmm. Um, because I find like I, I think I think I think there's something awesome, and equally I think there's something really dangerous about nostalgia, which mm. is it is which is it is a willing act of self delusion, and I think we have to we have to be really careful because because it's not harmless. Like, like we have to say we are self-consciously lying. It's so seductive. It is, it is tremendously seductive. And I think it's partly seductive because it's a lie. Um, well, and it's a lot more personal than people will let it be like, Oh, I love that time. No, you love what you were doing at that time. You love yourself when you were 19. It's an incredibly chauvinistic instinct. (laughs) And, I felt like if I'm going to devote this much time to a subject that I care deeply about, 80s teen movies, I have to argue for them more than um, I have good memories associated with them. And well, what I was arguing for was they was their permanence. Significant and, cultural impact. Yeah. And, and this is kind of what I was getting at earlier when I said you take them seriously. And what made you decide to, to focus on setting? Um, I thought that was a great metaphor for permanence, mm. like like that these movies are still with us and, you know, concrete and steel and soil and not simply <laughs> in our memory or, or you know, in a, in a DVD or a film library somewhere. Um, and uh, and I also like I, the question that I that was sort of hanging over the whole thing was like, what was it like to be young in America at that time? And um, uh, and when I dove into it, I realized that the movies that had asked that question from a previous generation, your American graffitis and your, you know, and your summer of 42s and your even your rebel without a cause, those were essentially coastal endeavors. Those were movies yes. about the two, those were movies that, that saw America as kind of a mid-Atlantic and, and a Southern California and not much else. Um, help that I'm from the middle of the country. But I was just going to get to that. So there's a personal connection here. You are from Michigan. Yeah. And 14 years, no, you were 11 when you saw Breakfast Club? How old are you? I was 13 when I saw it. 13 when you saw Breakfast Club. It must have been like a light going off that, hey, this isn't, you know, I'm sure for you, Fast Times is really exotic. It's far off. It's that California I've been hearing about. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had I had older cousins who grew up in Santa Cruz, and I thought they were like from the future, like <laughs> sending, sending transmissions to me in the middle of the country. My dad, who's from Detroit, was very proud of being from the American Midwest, and mm-hmm. would self consciously point out, you know, he would say things like he would say he, he would self consciously point out the American Midwest, you know, be it be it Michael sure. Moore, or Earth, Wind, and Fire, or whoever. But like, I know um, how that goes because I'm Jewish. <laughs> yeah, Scarlett Johansson, uh, you know, she's Jewish. Uh, yeah, and one of those things was John Hughes. Like he, yeah. he had read somewhere. Oh, that really? John Hughes was you know was born in Michigan, but from what, what was from Chicago, and he thought that was really cool. He was fiercely from the Midwest. Very much. I mean, so, I think you include right? the book where he came to LA and hated it. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was there. He was there four years and um, and didn't care for it at all. And, and and kept they kept their house in 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 suburban and Chicago it, and spent Christmases there and stuff. Because I've read a lot about this subject, I'm a little hazy right now. Was it your book that had that had used one of the movies to point out all the ways he was showing how homesick he was? Yeah, I mean, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which 
came out when John Hughes was at the absolute height of his power. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it, it's a little obscene that he was that he was such an accomplished filmmaker at that time. And then he made Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which was a bonanza from the day it was born. That is really yeah. Like I, I'm always I'm always shocked when people say, "Oh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off makes me so nostalgic." And I'm like, "That movie never went anywhere." That's like being nostalgic for Coca Cola. Like well, it's nostalgic <laughs> for stuff that never existed, but it's definitely a time capsule. You sure, movie. sure. Uh, I, I, I submit that Chicago has never looked as good as it has as it. It's a love letter. Yeah, I agree. And when you take into account that John Hughes and his family were stationed on the other coast at that time, it really does feel like a I miss Chicago movie. And and plus, if you if you pair it with the fact that his next directorial. Um, project was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is a movie about homecoming to Chicago. Nice. I think, it, I think I, I, it sort of completes the narrative. Do you include She's Having a Baby? It's not a teen movie. Right, so. right. I was 22 when that movie came. I thought it was a horror movie. <laughs> I can see that. I have not seen She's Having a Baby since I saw it in the theater, which I, I feel like is something I need to correct. I, I saw it just recently, and it's pretty funny. Just the idea that he's like up there typing away, trying to write a novel while he's working in an ad agency. There's a lot of suburbia of, you know, what, what, what are we doing and why, what have we settled for things. And Right. Suburbia is this kind of weird foreign country we right. find ourselves as expats living in. Like. I remember he's got the friend who shows up. It's Alec Baldwin, uh-huh. and he's all slick and stuff. But in the end, he makes a pass at his wife because he's miserable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think he was as strong at dealing with the grown-up. Although he did later, right? He got involved in grown-up movies. He, I mean, he was he was a, a working screenwriter until the day he died. Mm-hmm. It, it, tons and tons of movies that he sort of never publicly took credit for. He was responsible for. Um, but like, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles is. One hundred percent a grown-ups movie. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and is and I think one. I think one of his, if not the best of his. Um, I, I just think that movie wears incredibly well. Which um, ones don't wear well? Oh, like there's always there's always. I mean, like it's very easy to sit there and chuckle at like the haircuts and the shoulder pads and the and the station wagons with wood paneling and stuff like that. But I think they all wear pretty well. Like mm-hmm. like some of them. I mean, some of the some of the the. Uh, portraits of 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 non-white people right. and, of, and the, of women are are embarrassing. Like yeah. our, our sophomore, the changing wars, childish. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think like I don't think I don't think John Hughes meant any offense by that. But that I don't think that means we shouldn't be rigorous with those movies and right. see them. Like, as we're a, allowed to realize that Jake Ryan's actually not a good guy. No, and see those as like points on a continuum towards hopefully our improvement as a society. Like, <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I, 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 I am very much in favor of of the idea that if Sixteen Candles or Breakfast Club or Ferris Bueller's or any of these movies are classics, that means we um, continually reevaluate our experience with them. Hmm. Um, classic does not mean you know you put it in a glass case and admire. What's interesting though is so I, I'm lucky enough that my child is 21 now, so he's watched these movies, you know eight, nine years ago with me. But for parents now who have been waiting their whole lives to show their child 16 Candles, they're in for a shock because their kid's going to see parts and go, ooh, this is not cool. Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely true. And I I have, I have, had that feeling over and over again putting this book together. And, and it was just me watching mm-hmm. watching these movies. It's um, sort of a, oh, I didn't notice that back then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, how could you? Like, it was, a, it was a long time ago and you were a different person. Right. I um, thought the nerds were triumphant in Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I think that's part of... That's part of the project. That's part of the project of, of a movie or a book or a song being part of your life. Mm-hmm. Is you is you have an on. It's a marriage. It's not. It's not a fling. That that it was not a summer romance that happened forty years ago. Um, now. It can feel, and I understand it, like we don't have time for all of these marriages. Like, like we don't <laughs> – I mean, most people don't have the life priority I have, which is, which is like in addition to friends and family, to spend as much time with books, music, and movies as possible. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and I get that. Uh, but I think like – I think it is really important to remember that these things are important to us not just by the impression they made on us then, mm-hmm. but by the – the impression, but by, by, but how they shaped who we are now. So moving forward, with that um, you've written about books, 
you've written about movies, and you just mentioned to me you're working on something about vinyl. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a, a documentary film about the renaissance of vinyl records. Is this your first foray into film? Yeah. I thought I mean, I'd be like alliterative I, there. Yes, it is. Um, my, my co-producer has made films before, which, thank God, because someone, someone needs well, to know how, what they're doing. How does one come about being able to do that? Oh, I don't know if we're going to be able to do right. it. Like, like we, we have a lot of work ahead of us and we have to, you know, find subjects and a crew and funding and all of those kind of things. But like that, that uh, forgiveness rather than permission as far as I'm concerned. What's like, your role going to be in it? Uh, I will – God, I don't even know how I, – I think we're, we're – both of us are doing everything equally. Uh, if I had to speculate, the credits will probably say like directed by Kevin Smokler and produced mm-hmm. by my co-producing partner. But that's to be worked out. Be kind of a Coen Brothers setup. I would think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not. Neither one of us is all that concerned with um, with who's going to be called what. And how do you envision it going? What, what's your What's your vision for this? If we had come up with this idea five or six years ago. Um, we uh, the story would have been why have vinyl records made a comeback? Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 investigation has been thoroughly investigated. Um, I agree. The question we're interested in now is what does it mean? Okay. And uh, and if if a if a small uh, hobby interest passion is suddenly much bigger, if the tent of enthusiasts is suddenly much larger, what does that mean? And we, we find that a very interesting metaphor for America. Now, right? when you go into a project like this that involves a central question, do you have an idea in your head of how you think the question will be answered? Or are you coming into complete, like, I just want to know the answer to this question? Everything I've read about documentary making and everything I've heard from, like, other writers that I admire, you know, Susan Orlean famously says, like, I don't have a list of things I need answered. I hang around and the story presents itself hmm. to me. Um, like, if she was doing, like, Watergate kind of investigative journalism, she might have to do it slightly differently. But for the most part, like, we get Susan Orlean's work, which I think is transcendent and beautiful and will be with us long after we're all gone, um, because of that approach. Like, everybody I talk to who makes documentary film that I feel that way about says like you don't you can't have you can't know the answer to the question if you think you have an answer you're going to be limiting you're going to be limiting what the story is sure you're going to be tailoring it to get to your answer part of the making of a documentary is is the investigation into the question so you just have to have the thirst to find the answer yeah that's a good word for it and is there any similarities between that and writing the books that you write I, you know, yes. Like, I, I think maybe I have a firmer idea of what I'm after um, when uh, when I'm writing books. And I think it's because I come from, you know, I come from, like, opinion journalism where it was like, where it was like, no, it's the, the person, the, the, the purpose of it is to make an argument for something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find that, frankly, that's that's easier to do. That's easier to do when you're younger and you're more interested in being right. I've, I'm really uninterested in being right. Like I, I'm more interested in being surprised. I don't know about um, interested. I'm certainly less sure of being right. <laughs> that too, yeah. Um, so you're going book, book, documentary. You also mentioned you're working on an essay collection. Yeah, I, I, I love essay collections, and the writers I admire are disproportionately essay mm. writers. So, like, I'd love to, like, I'd love to kind of, you know, be the eleventh man on that basketball team. Like, mm-hmm. so yeah, if I can do something as, if I can do something as, as you know. If I can do something like ten percent as crazy good as you know, as you know, Joan Zidian and Zadie Smith, and you know, and, and, well, and those a, people, like, it's a similar idea to you. Do have a question you want to explore when you write an essay? It is, yeah. Um, I'm, I, I've got sort of two potential ideas I'm toying around with. Like, like one is about fandom, and one is about American icons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I really like. I really want to do this sort of. I really want to do this interview-style collection because I love reading collections of interviews, too, because it's something I spend a lot of my time doing as a writer. Uh, and I love, like, the Paris Review interviews and, like, the Bomb Magazine interviews. Like, I have one of – a project like that I want to do about women filmmakers. Um, it sounds like if there's one um, constant thread throughout all of your work, which if you look at it from 
a distance, it seems like, boy, this guy just gets an idea and runs with it. But you're really exploring the American condition, aren't you? Yeah. Like, I think, like, the, 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 if there is a question that, um, that is, is in the soil of everything, of everything I do, it's what do the things we create say about who we are? Mm-hmm. And, um, and what does the things that other people create that we choose to spend our time with say about who we are? That, to me, that is the, mm-hmm. that is the essential question of culture. And I, but I, I consider my, like, I consider my American DNA very much the, like, yes. books, music, and movies that, that come from the soil of this country. So. And it also sets up situation where as you are creating things that don't draw don't make value judgments about the level of the culture you wrote a book about classics and you followed it with a book about pop culture and movies and now you're going to do a documentary about records yeah i just i find that like i find that you know that um how do we define good mm-hmm. like when talking about culture i, I just find that question so uninteresting like I, I'm not saying I'm not saying like everything deserves equal time because because that is an empty gesture. We will never we will never be able to give everything equal time. Um, but like me, like like sitting behind a, a, a sitting behind at, at 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 the judge's bench and making and making and passing verdicts on what is good that that is so uninteresting to me. In part because I think in part because it changes all the time. Right. Like, like we thought Henry Miller Henry Miller's story. Or I'm sorry, Henry Miller Henry James's story Daisy Miller was was trashy schlock when it came out, and everybody thought that about it. And it was only you know yeah. generations later Henry James was probably dead in the ground uh, when when we decided that was literature. Just add time. Yeah. Just that time we thought the same thing about Shakespeare too. Shakespeare was dead and buried <laughs> before we considered it before we considered it high art. Well, I know you're not interested in that kind of career arc. No. <laughs> I know I'm not. Um, but I'm also not interested in being some sort of some sort of arbiter over right. over what, you know, of, of you know, reestablishing the canon. But I do it. I do think by writing something like Brat Pack America, a reader who's reading this serious book is forced to go, "Hmm, Savage Steve Holland. I'm going to have to check that out." I certainly hope so. You know, like I think I really listen. There, 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 there is crap out there. No question oh, sure. about it. I, I, but you know what? I and I'm not someone who just likes likes crap so I can be oppositional to everybody who calls it crap. I think that's really boring. <laughs> I, I, I will be the absolute first person to admit that a song like "Starships We Built This City" is is makes. Every possible mistake a pop song could make. Traditionally understood to be the worst pop song ever. And that is, and that, I think that I think that is why it is nonsensical. The verses don't add up to That's one another. Bad. It misuses words. It has a three-note guitar solo. It's self-contradictory, and yet it is half the reason I moved to San Francisco. <laughs> and so that song had but tremendous impact on me, despite making all of those mistakes. As you were saying that, I I can't help but think that you know some of it does have to do with taste. You know, I, when I was younger, I used to pride myself on my inability to be able to get through a John Grisham novel. I can't do it. It's crap. Meanwhile, I'm reading sports biographies, you know, all over the place. You're telling me that they somehow have a higher cultural value than John Grisham novel? And personally, I think Summer of 69 is a fantastic song. (laughs) So do I. It's schlocky. It's emotional. I love it. And Brian Adams was seven in 1969. (laughs) um, But, you know, I... I didn't know that. I'm glad you did the math. Is he that old? Yeah. Well, you know, and like I coming from southeast Michigan, which is essentially like suburban... Toronto, like I always, oh. I always liked that kind. Of, you know, I like anything that came out of Southern Ontario. But like, I think, like, yeah, I think um, the the that's why I don't believe in guilty pleasures because, like, who should feel guilty for something they like? Um, I just believe we should be able to um, speak eloquently about mm-hmm. the things yeah. we like because, it, like, otherwise we're like going through life with like masking tape over our mouths. Like, you, know, you make a really good point because what you're saying is basically if I like Summer of '69, rather than tell them, oh, it's totally cheesy, but I like it, just own it and say I like it, and here's why. Let yeah. me tell you why this is good. Why I think this is good. And just you know, like, like know your shit or be willing to say like I don't know. Um, I, 
I think, you know, yeah, Summer of Summer of 69 is a boomer nostalgic song by a guy who isn't really a boomer <laughs> about a, about an interesting sort of roots rock period in American history where like an idea of a lost America, even in this case by a Canadian, was very big. See John Cougar Mellencamp and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And like, and the fact that like Brian Adams was already famous in Canada when that song came out, like, and that song is a deliberate like crossover attempt song, even though it was on an album where he'd already made a crossover. Like, like these are these are interesting facets. Like, I'm not saying everybody's got to spend their time with that kind of stuff, right. but some of those things are probably at the root of why you like something. And I just feel like, like, the more I know, the more my toes are tapping and my feet are skipping, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good approach. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we're out of time, or, or fortunately for listeners who don't want to listen to us talk about <laughs> Summer 69 anymore. Um, before we go, though, um, tell our listeners... Uh, your website, how they or how they can become one of your sixty thousand Twitter followers. Oh, Jesus, do they want to? Um, <laughs> KevinSmokler dot com. My last name is spelled S M O K L E R. On Twitter, I am Ouija W E E G E E. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I spent. I, I, I put in most of my social media, you know, communicating with other people, kind of efforts. Uh, and the book is Brat Pack America. Colon, a love letter to 80s teen movies. Someday you're going to write a book that doesn't have a colon in the title, but Unlikely. not yet. <laughs> uh, as for me, you can find me on the social media, the Twitter and the Instagram, at that Larry Rosen. Uh, I don't have a website, but I do have another podcast, and its website is isitgoodforthejews.com. As for us here at the Grotto Pod, uh, we are produced by Lee Kravitz, Beth Weingarner, and Lori Ann Doyle. Uh, our email is grottopod at gmail.com. Our Twitter and Instagram are at the Grotto Pod. Please go to iTunes, give us a review. Five stars, subscribe, tell a friend. I think that's it. But there's always one more line that poor Bridget, who is probably at the doctor right now getting her knee drained or something going on, she takes us out with the same line, and I'm going to do it right now. And that line is, read, write, and just keep working. Mm